Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Philippians 1, 27 through 30. The word of God speaks to us. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that I saw that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Now we're on. That sound good? We doing okay? Rowdy, I see. All right. All right. Let's party. Uh, hey, I'm glad to be with you guys this morning, and uh, it's always a privilege to get down here and spend a morning of worship with you guys. I, I really do love this congregation. I love your pastors. And uh, opening the Word of God, you guys are kind to me. You always seem receptive. At least you put that on your face. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's good to be with you guys today. Hey, just something we do every single week. If you're new, if you're new with us, I want to explain a little bit something that we do that may be weird to you. Um, and if it's still weird after I explain it, then I'll just let it be weird, you know. Um, but I want to explain, we stand in the honor of reading God's Word. Maybe you come from an old school tradition who did that, and you're like, we never sort of explained why we do these up-downs in service like that, you know. Uh, or maybe you, you've never experienced that at all. Here's what we do when we stand in the honor of reading God's Word. We really believe as a church that this Word comes to us as the very Word of a living God. The very word of a living God. If this ceiling right now were to bust open and God himself were to descend, the physical body of Jesus to speak to us, he has so bound himself to these words that he would say what's in this book. And so we stand in the honor of reading God's word because he's our king. And when the king speaks, the people stand. Amen. So we open God's word today. I'm really excited about it. Andrew um, led you through last week and start of the year 2024 what we're doing is kind of laying foundations of the church coming back to some foundational things so if you're here last week Andrew talked about just sort of the foundational um, place that the word of God holds for us as Christians to sort of guide us we're so quick to drift in a world of hot takes that we need to be people of the book come back to the foundation of God's word and what I'm doing today is going to set up what we're going to do the next few weeks and talking about the mission of our church today I want to come back to the foundation of who are we as the people of God. What is the church? What is God's design for the church? What's a vision for the church so that what we're doing is not just sort of like a, I don't know, I guess it's what we do on Sunday morning sort of thing, but it's like, a, hey, I have a vision for what the church is, what I am doing as a part of it, and, and what all this means. So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, if you please pray for me, I'll pray for you, and we'll jump into this passage of scripture that I, I really love on this topic. God, we come to you today in the uh, strong name of Jesus. And I, I realize in a room like this, um, the faith of some is wavering. The faith of some is white hot. And there's faith, faith of others in the room that is somewhere in between all of that. And I'm so grateful that today as we open your word, 
you are a non-anxious presence. God, you are not frenetic when you speak. You are not hand-wringing when you speak. You're not unaware of any of us in the room. And I pray that wherever our faith is and wherever we need to be edified to keep, to keep running the bases, as it were, with Jesus, stay in the game. God, I pray that you would meet us, that you would tether us to Jesus, and you would give us the confession one more week with saints around the world, Jesus is Lord. And we offer this prayer in the strong name of our King. We all said, amen. Uh, this last fall, I took my boys out for a man's weekend. I've got a six-year-old son, Asa, and an eight-year-old son, Ezra. And uh, I, saw, I thought it was time for us to have a man's weekend. So we did some fishing, we did some camping, we did some hiking. My father-in-law is a cattle rancher out in Clinton, Oklahoma, and so we took some time out there. And it was fun, all of it was fun. But for me, everything was sort of building and driving. All of it was sort of facilitating a fun night around the campfire uh, that we had that one night we camped out. I had planned that night to do this whole man talk around the campfire, six-year-old and an eight-year-old. It's time to talk about being men, right? And the idea I had was that somewhere between the hot dogs and the s'mores and just the sheer amount of soda that I gave them, just a smorgasbord of soda, like they didn't have a suicide of everything in the fountain machine. They just sort of created their own. It was just like I was having to keep them out of the fire. They had so much sugar in them, you know. But the idea of it was that I wanted to, in the midst of all that, lay some foundations, that it be the first of many conversations, I hope, that we have about what it is to be a man. That's what we tried to do. So I, had, I developed this whole sort of call and response thing. You know, I wanted to sort of growl under the starlight of that sort of Clinton, Oklahoma fire we created. And it was to say, I'm a cancer man. And my boys responded after me. I am made by God. I am made for God, you know. And I had other things I wanted to offer them that night. We had a blast. I'm not saying this because I'm some sort of chivalrous dad. Like, most things I plan like this don't actually happen because a meltdown happens somewhere in the midst of it, and we just end up going home. But this night was, was really special. And I remember trying to put it all together and trying to figure out what I wanted to say to them, something that they could retain, something that was sticky, that wasn't just sort of, I don't know, dad talked about weird stuff around a fire, you know. I, I wanted it to mean something to them. And as I thought about what I wanted to offer... I just had to focus on the foundations. This is the first of many conversations we're going to have. And what was interesting is I thought about the foundations of what I wanted to offer a six-year-old boy and an eight-year-old boy that are my namesake. I started realizing that the foundations weren't just good for them. The foundations were good for me. That somehow by giving them the basics of what it is to understand yourself as a man made in God's image brought me back to the heart of what I'm called to be, in that case, as a man made in the image of God and what I'm called to do. And that's the purpose of foundations, isn't it? Foundations aren't just good to initiate the new. If you're new to Frontline Church, I hope that what we talk about over the next few weeks is good for you to understand who we are as a church and what we mean by some things. But if you've been around this place for a long time, I hope these conversations on foundations are also meaningful to you as to why we do the things that we do and who it is that we are. And so, Again, last week, the Word of God, this week, the church. And what I want to do is draw your attention to a really fun passage in the book of Philippians, a passage that maybe you've heard before as it was read. This is a passage on the church that I've come to love over the years. I find it intriguing. It's a passage that's maybe familiar to you, but maybe it's familiar to you in a kind of way where you've missed some of the shocking things that Paul actually says in this passage. And so we'll look at it. The letter 
that Paul writes to the church in Philippi is an interesting letter in the New Testament. It's the only letter that Paul writes that doesn't have a corrective tone to it. In every other New Testament letter, Paul's writing to a a church to correct an issue, uh, a, a wayward living or wrong belief or some sort of like, you know, scuttle that the church has gotten into to, to bring reconciliation between relationships that are broken, but not in, not in this book. In the book of Philippians, he's writing to this church in Roman Philippi to pour gas on the fire, to encourage them in the way, like, hey, you guys are doing it, do it all the more. As a spiritual father, as an apostle, he's cheering them on. And so what happens in the opening part of the book, in chapter 1, Paul begins by just telling the church how grateful he is for them. He says, I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus, which is an amazing, how do you say that to someone? But Paul loved this church. He goes on after giving some gratitude and prayers for them just to give a report to them of how he's doing, and that's how chapter 1 sort of unfolds. He's writing this letter to this church from a Roman prison cell. He's preached the gospel of Jesus. Rome didn't like it. They locked him up. And now he's spending his time writing to his friends, hoping to encourage them in the faith. But what happens in verse 27 of chapter 1 is that Paul says his first word of instruction. Not correction, but instruction to cheer them on. And it's where I want us to draw our attention this morning. Look back at verse 27. He says this. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life, the way that you live, Be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul's opening word of instruction is a massive statement. It's a charge. It's a banner. It's like it's something you can come underneath and go, hey, this, in terms of foundations that we're talking about, this, you might understand it, is the foundational calling of the church of Jesus. That you and I are to be people who let our lives be lived. That's in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Now, a couple of things about what Paul says here in opening instruction. We tend to read a statement like this in an overly personal way. We see the word you there, only let your manner of life, and so we assume that Paul is talking to us personally. And it's true that this, what Paul is saying, applies to you personally, but it applies to you personally only so much as you're participating in the whole. Maybe to understand this in a better way, this is where our Oklahoma dialect is actually helpful. The word you there is more like an Oklahoma y'all right? Y'all live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is a plural that Paul is talking in terms of. This is a foundational element to what it means to be a Christian. Now, a couple of things that Paul points out in this charge. That phrase, let your manner of life, in English is is four, four words. But for Paul in the original Greek, it's a single word. It's better translated, live as citizens. Paul wants to talk about something worthy of the gospel in the way that they were living, but he wants to do so in terms of their citizenship. And so here's what Paul is driving at. He's saying to the church that their citizenship for them as Romans shouldn't be seen primarily as something to do with Rome. And he said, I don't want you to understand your identity as something primarily as those who live in the city of Philippi. Instead, live as citizens means I want you to understand yourselves as those who are blood-bought disciples of the Lord Jesus, whose primary citizenship is with Christ in heaven, and only secondarily then to understand yourself as Romans, who just so happened for a little while longer to live in Philippi. He makes this even more plain in chapter 3, verse 20, when he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and it's from there that we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So here's how I want to drop this in your lap today. If you translate this down to us, what Paul is saying is, I don't want you to think of yourselves primarily as an American. You see this? Don't think of yourselves primarily as an American. Now, this is wild what Paul says, because Philippi was a proud Roman city. They loved being Roman. It was going against the grain of nationalism when Paul must have said this, just like it must hit you as I say that today. The translation would be, don't primarily think of yourselves as Americans living in Oklahoma who just so happen to be Christians. What Paul is doing is saying the gospel rewires you, it flips you, it reorients you. You should primarily think of yourselves as blood-bought disciples of Jesus whose true citizenship is in heaven. And then only secondarily are you Americans who just so happen for a little while longer to live in South Oklahoma City, in Moore, and in Norman. And notice, he doesn't reframe this. He's not trying to just sort of say, down with Rome, any more than he's trying to say, down with America, if he were to write this to us directly. He's not trying to detach us from national pride. In fact, what he's actually trying to do is he's trying to reattach you in a good relationship with where you're from, in a good relationship with how you live there. He's reframing our citizenship, and what Paul is saying is this. Don't you realize that the very gospel of God's grace that has reached you The very gospel of God's grace that has changed you is a gospel that is also meant for every person in your city. It's meant for every person in your neighborhood, if you just want to think about your block for a second. And he says the way that you magnify that gospel, the way that you live worthy of that kind of gospel then, isn't to think of yourselves primarily as Oklahomans who happen to be Christians. The way that you magnify the gospel instead is to see yourselves as Christians who by God's grace and purpose just so happen to live in Oklahoma for the blessing and the benefit of the block you live on that they too might know that same gospel. You see, the gospel actually now sets us free and it empowers us to be the best of all citizens. This isn't about anti-citizenship. This is about citizenship as a kingdom, as a kingdom representative. We're supposed to be a colony of a kingdom behind enemy lines, as it were, to represent what Jesus is doing and breaking into the world as God's own Savior for his people. And there's so much more we could talk about on this alone. We fall short of this vision. Nonetheless, I want you to see today, this is the foundational calling of the church, that we're to live as citizens, a heavenly colony wherever God's placed us to magnify the good news of Jesus. So the question then becomes for us this morning, well, great, how do I do that? How do I live in a manner worthy? And before we jump to what Paul outlines for us, he's going to answer that question. I just want to pause and hold some tension here to say, what do you imagine Paul says next? If if you were just to hear, hey, you, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Y'all, collectively, this is your marching orders, live in a manner worthy. What do you imagine Paul says next? What's the first dot that he's going to connect? What would you assume he would say next? I imagine, based on Oklahoma Bible Belt religion, you might expect Paul to start talking about moral ethics or something. You might expect him to talk about spiritual disciplines, that to live in a manner worthy of the gospel means you should read your Bible more, you should pray more. Maybe he's talking about humanitarian deeds, that you should do good for the poor. But what Paul is about to say in terms of how we're to live this way has always occurred to me as quite shocking. 
Because the first dot that he's going to connect is not what you and I might think. Notice again what he says in 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, I may not come to see you guys, or, or, or I may come to see you and I may be absent. I'm in prison as he's writing this letter. But here's what he says. I want to hear of you. Here's how you do it. I want to hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So what Paul gives to the church, did you hear this? As the foundational calling, live worthy of the gospel in your city, the first dot that he connects and how to do that, the first evidence of living worthy is not morality and ethics. It's not consistency in your Bible reading plan. Maybe some of you have already bailed on that by February 16th or whatever day it is, 14th. January, not February, good grief. Good night, New York, (laughs) wherever I am. It's not any of those sorts of things. The first evidence is church unity. The first evidence that you're living in a way that would magnify the gospel of Jesus is unity with a local church. This is not to say that morals morals and ethics don't matter. The Bible speaks to those things. It's not to say that Bible reading plans and prayer don't matter. The Bible speaks to that. Good deeds, the Bible speaks to that. But listen, isn't it possible for you to check all the theological boxes? Isn't it possible for you to have religious morals in order and not do certain things? Isn't it possible for you to have rigid devotional consistency? and yet still be a petty, slanderous, judgmental, social media snarky Christian. I mean, there are people who say, I read my Bible every day, and they are just, they are calling war on Facebook with other people. They read their Bibles every day. There are those who would say that, uh, there are those who would look look at their good deeds and say, I love God. And I don't need the church. It's just a me and Jesus Christianity. But what the scriptures are going to say is that the first way that you're to live worthy of the gospel of Jesus is connectedness and unity with his people. And what Paul's driving at is this. If we don't have unity, then what kind of witness to the world is that of Jesus? What does that tell the watching world about Jesus? If all we're able to say is that the power of the gospel of Jesus changes some things we believe and it changes some of the ways that we behave, but it doesn't change our peace together, then what does that say about the gospel? This is why Paul is driving to the center of this. And this isn't just like an isolated encouragement he has for the church at Philippi. The issue of church unity is something that runs throughout the New Testament. Think about Jesus. In his final prayer, his high priestly prayer in John 17, the thing that was burning at the center of Jesus before the Roman soldiers took him to be crucified, was he prayed this in John 17, Father, I pray that my disciples would be one, just as we are one, that the world may know that you sent me. You think about the book of Ephesians. Paul writes the church in Ephesus, and he says, almost the same language, I want you to live in a manner worthy of the calling you've received, How do I do that? He says, be gentle, be humble, bear with one another, eager to maintain the bond of peace. Unity. And I love that Paul offers this to the church at Philippi. Acts 16 tells us how this church got started. Do you realize the first members in the church at Philippi were a wealthy fashion designer, 
a girl who was human trafficked and set free from demons, and then a blue-collar Roman soldier and his family. Those were the first members in the church at Philippi. You couldn't possibly start a church with people who had less in common. Could you imagine their first gathering together? What do we, what do we talk about? This one's super wealthy, this one was demon-possessed, and this one was a Roman GI. Politically different, I mean, maybe even ethnically different, certainly their backgrounds were different. And yet he tells this group of people, I want you to strive side by side, one mind, stand firm, the power of the one spirit who has made you now one with Christ and one with one another. But here's why he tells them this. Can you just imagine the prophetic witness that their unity would have been to the city of Philippi? These are a group of people who had never otherwise been together. If they were in a restaurant, they would have requested to sit on the opposite side. And now they're people who call each other brother and sister. <laughs> now they're people who are family and citizens together with Jesus in heaven. And I offer that to say the translation to our moment is in a current cultural moment that's almost no grace and all cancel. Where our culture is just looking, they're eager to put their finger on the cancel button again and put someone else in the news. Here's where the church stands in wild contrast. Our unity can be a prophetic witness in a cancel culture because here's actually what the church is. We're a collective of people. If you want to talk about cancellation, we should have all been canceled and most of all by God himself. And yet he's chosen instead not to cancel us, but if anything gets canceled, it's our own sins against him at the cost of the death of his own son. That's how he unites us to himself. And if this is the grace that got us into this thing, then surely this is the grace how we learn to offer to one another to now live together. It's the grace that keeps us in this thing. You see how church unity can be a prophetic witness in a moment? And so maybe before I go any farther, is there anyone in this church that you need to be reconciled with? The stakes are really high. This is the first dot to connect of living a God-glorifying life. It's a big deal. And I want to keep reading. There's two more verses. Are we still together this morning? Are we warmed up? Paul's going to give us two reasons. He tells us, hey, live worthy of the gospel, unified. Now I want to give you two reasons why this is so beautiful. And the first reason in verse 28 is this, that unity is a missional strategy. Unity is a missional strategy. Notice what he says in verse 28, continuing his previous thought. You're unified, you're standing side by side, one mind, one spirit, and he says this in 28, and don't be frightened by anything. No caveats there. Don't be frightened by literally anything and anyone who would oppose you, by your opponents. Don't be frightened by anything. And what's wild about Paul saying this is you're like, anything, Paul, like literally, don't be scared about nothing of those who would oppose us. He says, if you're unified together, don't be afraid of anything. He says this in the midst of an anti-Christian Roman empire. He says, don't be scared of anything, Rome or Philippi. Don't be afraid of an oppressive, persecuting government. Don't be scared of them a single second. Don't fear your neighbors who might sell you out to the government. Paul literally writes this letter, as I mentioned before, from a Roman prison cell in shackles by Rome, 
threatened to be killed for preaching Jesus. He says, I'm not scared as I write a Christian letter to Christian brothers and sisters being outed for being Christian. Don't be scared. How can Paul say this? This is a wild thing. Don't be afraid by anything of those who would oppose you. How can Paul say this? Paul says this because he believes in the deepest place of his bones that he really is a citizen of heaven. He really believes, listen, he really believes that Rome could do nothing to him. You remember the, the famous verse in, just above this in Philippians 1.21 where Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, if I get to live, fine. I know that my life belongs to Christ. And if I die, fine. Then I get what I really want. That's to go be in the presence of Jesus forever. Paul was a nightmare of a prisoner for Rome. He was a nightmare. Because if they let him live, he was going to preach Jesus and they hated that. If they killed him, then they gave him what he wanted. He was a nightmare of a prisoner to Rome. And this courage that he's now offering to the church, Paul's not saying, hey guys, I'm a superhuman. Look at my super Christian powers and not being scared. No, he's actually saying, this is actually common Christian courage available for everybody. This is available for everybody. Paul really believes. Like this is functional application of I believe that God is in control. I really believe that God's in control. And not just the stuff that I'm okay with him being in control of, like literally in control of everything. This is why Paul can say this. He really believes that God gets the last word. He really believes that we don't have to be afraid of anything. And how relevant is this for us in our moment? It's true that you and I aren't persecuted like he was. It's true that you and I aren't persecuted like most Christians around the world are persecuted. But isn't it true there's a lot of political hand-wringing among Christians that are afraid that we're losing our nation. And yet Paul says, don't be afraid of anything. Don't be afraid that your candidate from your political party doesn't get in office. Don't be afraid of anything. Isn't it true that God has historically, and he's now currently advancing his gospel sovereignly under political ideologies that are far worse than what we're dealing with in America? There are places where it's literally dangerous to be a Christian and the gospel is spreading like wildfire. This is why Paul says, if you understand your citizenship to be in heaven, you're less concerned with worldly peace, you're more concerned with gospel advance, and you don't have to be scared of anything. That's your security. And so here's what Paul says, instead of all your political anxieties, why don't you exchange them for a better fight? And that's unity with God's people. That's a better fight. Unity with God's people. And then notice what he says at the end of verse 28. This is wild. He says this, referring to the unity. This is a clear sign to the watching world, the opponents, those opposed to the gospel. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but also of your salvation and that from God. This is where, like this might have been a familiar passage to you, but you may not have realized we're talking about judgment here. Paul just said the unity of the church is a big deal such to the degree that it is a sign to the watching world of coming judgment. At the same time, church unity is also a sign to you in the room of your salvation. What does Paul mean by this? The reason that we, he can call unity, the unity of a local church, a sign to the world of coming destruction is because we are a people 
from all different backgrounds. That's true in this room. You and I are people from all different backgrounds, and yet all of us now come together unified under a crucified and risen Lord. And what's going on here then is that a crucified Jesus is a sign to the world, isn't he? A crucified Christ is a sign to the world on the one side of judgment, but on the other side of salvation. And whether a crucified Christ is judgment or salvation all hangs on what do you do with Jesus? Do you look to him and do you see in him salvation? Well, then he's a sign of grace and peace. Or do you look to him and scoff and think it's a joke? Well, then he is a sign of coming judgment. Acts 17, God has fixed a day by which he will judge the world by the one he's risen from the dead. And so it's not as though the world readily recognizes this. We know that or else they would come and believe. But what Paul is saying is that when the church stands unified together under Jesus, it's subtle, isn't it? It's humble, isn't it? But when the church stands together unified under Jesus week by week, day by day, year by year, There is a sign going out to the local community, either of grace and salvation, because the crucified and risen Jesus is offered to everyone. It's true that there are some of you in the room that you weren't in the room a year ago, but the steady witness of the church offered you the gospel, and today you're a baptized follower of Jesus. Steady year by year, day by day, Jesus is either a sign of salvation and grace for those who look to him, Or he's a sign of coming judgment for those who scoff. But all the same, he's king over both. And he's the Lord of those from every background. He's the Lord of those from every skin color who come to him. And he stands with us and us for him. And we stand together along with him. And this is why Paul says, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Church unity. Who knew that church unity was a missional strategy? This is a sign to a watching world our king really is king. He really is king. Look what he does among us. And there's one more verse. Verse 29, he gives us a second reason. He says, unity empowers us to suffer well. Unity empowers us to suffer well. Look at verse 29. He says, it's been granted to you. The language is graced. You've received a grace from God. You've received something granted to you from God. What is that? That for the sake of Christ, you get two graces, that you believe in Jesus, and you will suffer for his sake. Did I read that the right way? (laughs) Right? He said, "I I don't think about suffering as grace. The first grace we love, we love to believe in Jesus. That's a grace from God. But he says, it's also a grace that you would suffer for his sake. Two graces. The first we love, the second not so much. What does Paul mean? Lean in with me here. This is getting close to the finish. What Paul is saying is that saving faith in Jesus and suffering for the sake of Jesus are both graces from God. Why? Because neither neither of them can you create and neither of them can you endure apart from the work of God in you. Let Let me just break it down. For faith, for example, you didn't create your faith. You didn't muster up your faith. You didn't find God. That's not the gospel. You didn't make your faith. You didn't find God. Instead, the good news of Jesus is that he found you. He chased you down. He found you out. He's remaking you. And the reason that any of us endure in faith isn't because we're strong enough. It's because God endures with us and he sustains our faith. 
That's why he calls faith a grace. But Christian suffering is also a grace in the same way. You don't create it, and you couldn't endure it apart from God's work. No one chooses suffering. But the reason that the New Testament always mentions suffering for Christ's sake as a grace is because at the very least, if you suffer as a Christian simply for being a Christian, then at the very least it's evidence that they see enough of Jesus in you to ridicule you for it. (laughs) It's an evidence that I'm doing it right. It's a grace. Listen to what Peter says as he drives the same thing Paul's talking about. In 1 Peter 4 he says, but insofar, or says rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, so that you could also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, then you're blessed. Why? Because it's evidence that the spirit of God, spirit of glory and God rests on you. And if anyone suffers as a Christian, he says, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. I could give you quotes all through the New Testament. Jesus says, blessed are you when others persecute you and revile you on account of me. For so also did they do to the prophets who came before you. And your reward is great in heaven. What Paul is saying is that suffering as a Christian for being a Christian is not a sign of God's neglect, but rather it's a proof that God is at work in you enough that people would identify you with Jesus. And I get it, right? To a large degree, we don't experience suffering like that in our context, but this is the case for many Christians around the world. But I would just want to say this to our room and translate it to us. Oftentimes, suffering is a reason why people would claim to walk away from God. But what Paul is suggesting here is suffering is no reason to walk away from God. It's all the more reason to stay with God because through suffering, you actually are joined to Jesus. Philippians 3, Paul says, I actually want a fellowship with Christ through suffering. Why? Because through suffering, I come to trust the Father along with Jesus that God really does know the way out the other side. Suffering is a way we get to know him more deeply. And so I don't know if you'll ever suffer persecution like many around the world do. But here's what I do know. There's not a single one of us in this room today that will make, us out of this, make it out of this life without suffering. Not a single one is exempt from it. And you don't get to often choose what kind of suffering you'll go through. You don't get to choose it. If we could choose it, we'd just choose not to have it. But here's what we can choose. As Christians and by the grace of God, you and I do get to choose how we'll suffer. We don't get to choose if we'll suffer, but we do get to choose how we'll suffer. And isn't it true? It's one thing to confess Jesus when the sun is shining and all is right in the world. But it's a different thing entirely to hear someone confess Christ to be their joy and their security when it's dark and they're on the brink of breaking. That's a different thing. That's a different glorying. That's a different worthiness of the gospel, right? You join the apostle Peter when all the disciples are walking away and he says, where else am I gonna go? For you alone have the words of life. And so this is the power that Paul's talking about and standing in and fighting for the unity of the church. Think of it, right? Like just at the point when you think you're crazy, just at the point when you start to think that you might be crazy and you've got no faith left, the unity of the church, brothers and sisters come around you and they say, you're not crazy, or maybe we're all crazy, all the same, we believe this too, and they help you find your faith again. Just at the point when maybe you have no prayers left to pray because it's dark, the strength of the church 
says, we'll pray on your behalf. And you just wait a little while and you'll find your prayers again. This is the point that Paul is making. The power of a unified church aids us in living a life worthy of the gospel. Why? Because it allows us to have a place where we throw down anchors. that Anchors in the ground that tether us on the dark day when we need them most. And you look around, you got brothers and sisters who say, I'm not the only one believing this. That whole band of crazy people is with me. And so here's, here's the big finish. Here's my jazz hands today, right? I don't know why I just did that. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what's coming for you in 2024. Sean, Andrew, the other elders of this church, they're with you every week, every, every, all through the week. They're your pastors on the ground. I get to come in as like a step pastor or something like that. So I don't know what's coming for you in 2024. But I do know that God has given you a calling to live as citizens of the gospel. To live as worthy citizens of the gospel. And the whole idea today, remember, was that we're laying foundations. This is foundational to our calling. And what Paul's just given to you and I is a vision of the gospel, a vision of the local church. He says that somehow the way that you're unified together, this small little ragtag bunch in South Oklahoma City, your unity together, do you realize, is actually a sign to the watching world of salvation and judgment, both from Jesus. He says, take it serious. Don't you realize this vision? Somehow your unity is a grace itself to empower you in suffering to stay with Jesus and learn to trust the Father with him that he really does know the way out the other side. This vision of the local church that Paul has given is to say, you can endure. You should have courage. Courage is yours in Jesus. You can be resilient. Stay at it. There's nowhere else to go. This is comfort. And Paul is actually saying with the Lord Jesus, he's right. In a progressive world where it feels like Christianity is failing, Jesus says, not even the gates of hell will prevail against my church. We stand with the one who is risen because he knows what he's talking about. Let's pray together. Father, I want to say just how crazy it is that you wouldn't just send your son for us, but along with your son and what he's done, you would make us citizens of your kingdom. You would take rebels and make us citizens. You would take outcasts and put us right in the middle of what you're doing. God, I pray that the same kind of grace that you've offered to us would be the same kind of grace we would learn to live, live in with one another. And we would take serious this unity. God, help us to be a sign to this city that would reflect exactly what you've said we can reflect. Help us to stay faithful to Jesus even in the dark day. And we do that not alone, but we do that together. Holy Spirit, would you fill us up with a vision that you have for us as, the, as, as God's people? And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name and we all say, as we come to this table, it quite literally is a table of unity. It's 
through this bread and this cup that Jesus reminds us of the way that he's united himself to us and the way that we're united to him. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he says this, this is my body that was broken for you. He says, take and eat. He takes the cup and he raises and he says, this is my blood that's poured out for you in the new covenant, he says. And this is about the forgiveness of your sins. He's united to us and us to him. And the new covenant, in case we just lose that in churchy language, the new covenant is this. I will be your God and you will be my people. Eyes wide open, he doesn't flinch. He's our God and we are his people. And he says of that promise, drink. Drink. It's so good. If you're a baptized follower of the Lord Jesus, you're invited to come to these tables receive fresh grace the new covenant promise is yours again today even if your faith is small and you're barely hanging on come to these tables and receive from Jesus if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian I'd ask you to abstain from these tables listen we're so glad that you're here but what we're saying in this meal is that the Jesus of scripture is our Lord so what's going on here is we'd say come to Jesus before you eat with Jesus and we'd love to talk with you about what it is to become a Christian so followers of Jesus as you're ready Come to these tables and receive.